Well, hey, good morning, Mercy family. If you are uh, watching this, that means that we've had some inclement weather and you are watching this in your pajamas at home. I thought about preaching in my pajamas to make you feel more comfortable and realize that would backfire. So not doing that. But uh, this is a way we recorded this just a couple of days earlier with our staff team so that we could still have a way to gather and hear God's word uh, on Sunday, even with inclement weather. So that's what we're doing. I do want to say um, happy MLK weekend to you. Uh, the Reverend Dr. King, man, what a reformer, one of the foremost figures in our country's history. And if you think back on every year, what I try and do is read uh, the letter from a Birmingham jail. That's just w- sort of a routine I have every single year. It was written by a preacher, Dr. King, to fellow preachers in Birmingham at the time. So that definitely has added impact for me. It was written to majority culture preachers, which is what I am. So love to read that and be reminded that at the core of his message was this message from Scripture. It was from Genesis 1 that all people are created in the image of God and therefore all worthy of dignity and honor. And he sought to bring that truth to bear in the world around him. That is, y'all, the power of the word of God going to bear on a people, on a time and an era. And that same word of God is still as powerful and true for us today. Um, In fact, just a few years before uh, Dr. King, it was 1955, uh, there was a guy named Andrew, um, they called him Andy, who was pulling up to the Romanian border and he was nervous, sweating because in his trunk, he had a whole bunch of Bibles. And the Bible, that word of God that is so powerful, man, it was illegal in Romania at the time. He's worried he's going to get arrested. Well, he makes it through. You know, in fact, this Bible was illegal across the entire communist bloc at the time. And in fact, over the past 1,700 years, it has been illegal in almost every totalitarian regime-controlled country. And that's because at its core, this Bible, man, it tells this story where there is a king who claims authority over every square inch of the world. And not only does he do that, he claims that because all people are created equally, kings and servants are viewed as equally before this God. And not only that, every single person can have salvation regardless of race, regardless of social status, regardless of your background and your past sins. You can have salvation. You can have life and new purpose. It's a powerful, a powerful book. Well, Andy makes it through, uh, makes it through that border that day, and he finds on the other side a secret church. And there he, as he starts to hand out Bibles, Man, you see, uh, he said that people were weeping, Christians were weeping at the ability to get their hands on this word because this thing, the word of God, was so vital to the life of the persecuted church. That's not just true in 1955. That is still true in the persecuted church today. It is still true for the whole church today. And what we're going to do today is we're going to go into Psalm 19. This is a psalm that actually, um, it is... It's hard to say, I know I say sometimes, like, this is my favorite passage of scripture because all scripture is good, okay, (laughs) equally good. 
But this one has just impacted me as much as any has in terms of how I view the word of God. All right. Uh, so we're going to go into it today. It's a different message than I'd intended, but with the weather coming, I was thinking back, like, I've got a sermon for us that we're going to punt to next weekend that I'm very excited about, uh, but wanted us to be in the room together for it. Um, but this one is one that I preached initially. I preached through Psalm 19 back in 2017, but we got a whole new church, and the Lord has just done a lot of work in me in it, and I wanted to bring it to us because it's going to lay out the claim in this Knowing God series. What we're trying to do is say, hey, you can know God not just know about him and know him. What this Psalm turns around and says is he has made himself knowable to us. And it makes this huge, incredible, majestic claim that we can know him. And what I want to impress upon you today is that the word of God holds the power of God. The word of God carries the power of God with it. And if that sounds overly simple, good. (laughs) Not intended to be flashy. You are watching this either in one of two camps. Either you're not a Christian or you are one. And if you're not a Christian, I want you to explore what it is we believe and you find it in the Bible. (laughs) That's where you find it. And if you are a Christian, then you've said, man, I believe this to be God's very word. So here's my question. Do you know it? Do you know it? It's God's word? Do you know it? I think we need to be reawakened to the power and beauty of God's word today. And right at the heart of this most impressive psalm is a majestic exaltation of the word of God. One that I hope that will kind of affect our hearts and then direct our church forward. So let's jump in. We're going to read through this whole thing. Um, I'm going to kind of take it in about three sections because I think that's how the psalm breaks down. And like I've told you, what we try and do when we're reading and studying the Bible and when we're preaching the Bible is we let the scripture, and not only is that what we're going to preach week in, week out, but it's also going to even dictate the structure of our sermons most of the time. And so this psalm breaks into three sections. That'll be our three sections, okay? So this first one will be verses one through six. All right. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours, look at, pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. I love that. Their voice goes out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. And in them, he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and nothing, there is nothing hidden from its heat. How awesome. Oh, how awesome is that? Y'all, we're going to get into uh, what this psalm says about the word, but I find it fascinating. David doesn't start there. Instead, he delivers a rich commentary on the sky, which is great. And if you remember last week, this is a continuation of the thought from Psalm 8 um, and saying, if you want to know something about God, you start by going out and looking up. The skies are the opening pages of God's book about himself, right? Genesis 1, what does he start with? Right, the very first thing he created was the heavens. And he spared no expense creating the heavens. He did not create a small sky. He created something that we could explore forever and ever and never reach the end of it. Right? Um, I had so much, I have so much fun studying this stuff with my 
kiddos, um, we have a, a devotional that I would encourage you guys um, to get, if you, especially if you've got little ones, but honestly, even if you don't, you should just order it on Amazon and get it. I know it's going to look like a kid's book, okay? But it's so great. Uh, it's called Indescribable, and there are three volumes of this thing, but this is the first one. It's 100 devotions about God and science, and a lot of those are going to look at just how, it's Louis Giglio is the guy that wrote it. Um, it's going to look at how big and awesome the sky is. Things like, y'all, the, just the moon, it's 239,000 miles away from the earth. And it's moving away every year at the rate of one inch per year. It's drifting away from us. Don't worry, it's going to be okay though, okay? It's going to take a long time for it to really get gone. The Milky Way galaxy. Man, the Milky Way, if you could somehow figure out, Elon Musk will probably do it next year, figure out how to travel at the speed of light, all right? It's still going to take you 100,000 years to travel across it. It's huge. And David says all of that, all of that, it's there for a purpose. It's not just static material. The heavens are messengers, and they are declaring their message is the glory of God. Last week, Psalm 8, we said majestic, magnificent. What we're seeing today is glory. You see this common theme running through the Psalms? It's not just big. It's beautiful. It's masterful. Now, listen, I say that. I know some will, um, some will, there are some who say that the idea that God created everything. That's been disproven by scientific study. They'll say it's a sign of weak-mindedness to attribute the, the just sort of unexplainable complexities that we do have in creation. They'll say it's weak-minded to attribute that to God. Basically, faith is for those that refuse to think. Now, to be fair, there have been times where Christians refused to hear obvious scientific fact because it contradicted what they wanted to believe about the world. So you think when Galileo proved that the sun, not the earth, was the center of the universe, and then the church put him in prison for talking about it. But listen to me, the scientific community has committed the exact same error plenty of times. The secular scientific community, I should say. Any scientific investigation that assumes from the outset that the divine has to be dismissed commits the very same error that the middle, medieval church did. It's a huge step of blind faith. Both of those extremes, which still exist today, pitting science and faith against each other, uh, they're doing so when God intended exactly the opposite. Uh, Francis Collins. Uh, Y'all have heard me reference him before a couple of times. Uh, he's the former head of the National Institutes of Health, just retired, and he's the guy that mapped the human genome, arguably the most reputable scientist of our day. He's also decidedly Christian. And when talking about this apparent conflict between faith and science, here's what he said. He says, as a scientist who's also a believer, the chance to uncover the incredible intricacies of God's creation is an occasion to worship. To be able to look for the first time in human history at all three billion letters of human DNA, which I think of as God's language, it gives us just a tiny glimpse into the amazing creative power of his mind. Francis Bacon, Albert Einstein, many other great scientists way before Collins believed faith and science to be two garrisons of the same army fighting together to declare the glory of God to us. God never reveals himself, y'all, in contradiction to scientific study. God reveals his glory through it. So look up. Look, look up through the telescope, look down through the microscope, and what you're intended to see in both is glory. Glory. So in all of this, the only question that's coming up for me is, is your relationship with God, 
The way you approach God, the way you think about God, is it matching up with who the heavens say he is? Like, do you realize who this God is? And he says that he is with you. You know, I think when we don't pray, it's most often because we've forgotten or just entirely missed that that's who God is. Because a small God, that's a small abstract God can't handle our real life big problems. And a small abstract God is not worthy of our submission. But when we see him rightly, and y'all, I think it's A.W. Tozer, yeah. He said the most important thing in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, his most, he said the most important thing about a church is our view of God. And everything else will be determined by that. When we see him rightly, we see that he can handle whatever we got going on in our lives. You got to imagine that as complex as your situation is right now, the problem in front of you, and I am not making light of it a bit, but you got to imagine getting planets to orbit around the sun without colliding into one another or the sun was just a little more complex, right? Getting the tide to somehow respond to and align with the moon. I mean, that's just even showing off, right? Getting the stars just right so that we could use celestial navigation for centuries. That God can handle whatever you have going on. He can. And it shows us that God is not just worthy of our respect, but that God, that God's worthy of our allegiance. That is a God that I can submit to because he really is king overall. He did not just set it all in motion and then walk away. He is divinely reigning over still all of it. And here's the thing. He's chosen you and I as his prized creation to know. So your problems, not only are they not too big for him, they're not too small for him either. Not too small for him. We think big God, you know, and you might think, I'm sure he's got other things to worry about. Nope. He's infinite. Which means he's got all the capacity in the world to worry, and not in the world, in the universe and beyond. He's got all the capacity, infinite capacity, and he wants you to come to him. He not only has the ability and capacity and the power, he wants you. He has the desire for you to bring what you have going on before him. Now, he's not a divine butler that's just there to make things a little easier. He's a divine father. He knows that your greatest need is actually him. And he wants to meet you with his presence and then walk with you through your struggle. So what you been worried about? Like, what have you been not, you've been worrying about it, but not praying about it. Listen, we worry and then don't pray. When that happens, what's happening there is we... (laughs) We think there there are things that we believe we should be able to control, and then they get beyond our control. And so we worry. Worry is the result of trying to be God when we are not. Prayer is the humble, difficult acknowledgement we're not God. But the creator, the one who did all that, he is. So if you are in a season of worrying, you got something specifically on your heart and mind, and maybe it's really like it's hit a high level right now. Maybe it's just been rumbling on the surface for a while. Whatever it is, I invite you to see that as an opportunity to grow in your awareness of who you are not and in your awareness of who God is. And not just in who he is, but get to know him. Now listen, these first six verses I've taken so much time on, they're they're actually all a setup. They're a setup for what's coming because they are saying you can know something about God through the heavens. But you can't actually know him fully through there. 
They're a setup. The best way I could think about it, it, David is saying the sun, moon, and stars, they're like a big neon sign saying, listen, you see all of this? Okay, the one who created all this, you see this glory? You can meet him in his word. You can meet him in his word. That's why this psalm is all one psalm. For David, there's no hard switch of thought between creation, the book of God's world, as theologians have called it, and scripture, the book of God's word. It's a seamless transition to go from talking about what God created to talking about the word itself. And here's what he says, starting over in verse 7. This is our next chunk. Oh, I love this. The law of the Lord is perfect. Look what it says. Reviving. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Yes, even much fine gold. And sweeter also are they than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Isn't that good? Moreover, by them is your servant Warned, in keeping them, there is great, great reward. Oh, so good for us. I told you the language of this is rich. It's dripping with metaphor. It's fully on display in these verses about God's law, which I find kind of, I don't know, I don't often think about it that way, right? Uh, the, the law, like when he's talking about the law, he's talking about the Old Testament books that you're about to hit in your Bible reading plan, um, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, right, Numbers, um, they're not always the most compelling devotional reads sometimes. Let's talk about a well-known example like the Ten Commandments, He's, you know, where it says, you know, don't bear false witness, so don't lie, right? I can respect that law because if we all abide by it, that would be good for us. Even though if I'm brutally honest and I get really down to the surface, I actually think you should abide by that law, but I should only abide by it when it's good for me and I'm going to break it when it's going to disrupt my life significantly, right? But you should always abide by it. That's some real truth, okay? But we all can generally agree that it's good and respectable, but that doesn't mean that I find that law to be delicious. Like, mmm, commandment four or something like that. You know what I mean? In fact, I feel the opposite. My sin wants to do the opposite of what the law tells me to do. Now the law is a good restraint, right? But following it, I do keep myself from destruction, but just because I appreciate the value doesn't necessarily mean it's dark chocolate truffles to me. What's happened? David has very carefully crafted this Psalm and he's done so after learning what it's like to walk with God through some real life experiences. He's crafted these words like an open door to say here, the reason that these laws are so good is because they draw you to, introduce you to God himself. The way to know God is the Bible. The word of God carries the power of God. And when David says law, I'm including the whole scriptures, Old and New Testament, because New Testament confirms it's God's word as well. 1 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So you'll have to decide if you're going to believe the Bible to be the word of God. But I'm telling you, I hope you'll read it as you decide that for yourself, because I think you'll see it's living and active just like it says it is. But I'm going to give you from this little section here, 
I'll give you sort of a, a sermon in a sermon outline of how to think about this text. Just five reasons David says you should read the Bible. I told you, my whole thing is, my ministry for Mercy Church is to get you to read the Bible. Here's why David, King David says you should read the Bible. He starts verse seven, God's word revives the soul. This is, this is probably the biggest thing here. It revives the soul. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. John 20, 21, these things are written so that you might believe and by believing have life in his name. That's right. That's right. Yo, you, you know, if you're a Christian, and right now I know this room is full of them because it's our staff team, okay? So they can all <laughs> testify to it right now. Man, how many of you did God use his word to totally overhaul your life? Yes. Changed your life. Yes. Romans 3.23, that was a big one for me. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When I had to be confronted by that, because I grew up a pretty morally good kid, at least by the standards of the world around me. And then I get confronted with, I too am actually a sinner. And God uses that to expose what's going on in my heart. And then Romans 6.23 says there is a savior, even though all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. There's a free gift from God, salvation. And I learned his name is Jesus. And I learned when a friend introduced it to me in the Bible, <laughs> when he read the Bible to me. And it doesn't just give life, it also revives it. That's an ongoing thing that we get to have, revives it. Some of you are in a dry and weary place and God feels distant. And I'm telling you, I promise you, his word is the access point for you. It's water to your soul. It has the life that you are longing for. So you get in there and you don't leave it walked with my wife through um, the loss of her dad. And for two years, man, it felt like a dry and weary season where she devoted herself to staying in the word of God. And eventually the dam broke and the river flowed and the Lord met her and honored that time. I'm telling you, it revives the soul. It is a promise. Not only does it revive the soul, it gives wisdom. That's what we see in verse seven and also the second half of verse eight, making wise the simple. And then you see that enlightening the eyes. Now listen, you don't, you don't need to be smart. Smart and wise are, are different. This wisdom David calls sure, which means it's reliable. It's his way of saying you can stand on it and it'll hold up. And the wisdom that it's going to tell you is gonna look crazy to the world. It is. When we choose God's way in our sexuality, that we choose to save sex for marriage, that, that's crazy to the world around us now. And people will get angry even at you holding that conviction. But it is reliable wisdom. It is wisdom that will lead to flourishing in a marriage, that will lead to flourish, flourishing while you are single and waiting. When we choose God's way with our money, when we give away out of sacrifice, not just give away if we come across some extra somewhere, but we actually build things like tithing into our family budget. That is crazy to the world around us. But it is sure wisdom that will lead to flourishing, even though the world says the opposite. These things seem foolish to someone who is trying to secure their own future. And go. this is why sometimes it's a struggle for um, someone to go to the Bible and be like, where's the wisdom? This actually seems crazy and hard and difficult. It's because you're going to it to secure your own future instead of letting your future be caught up in God's plan and what he has. 
Y'all, I long for us to trust God's word over our own instincts, to believe that how God says to live is actually better for us. I have had it. Professing Christians, not I've had it like I'm mad. I've had these encounters happen. Let me be clear. I've had these encounters happen with Christians who are seeking counsel um, from me and will say things like, look, I know God wants me to be happy. And will say things to me like, well, I know God wants me to follow my heart. And I have to say back, your God is Walt Disney. That's the only explanation for what you are saying. Because y'all, our hearts are wicked. And since when is God cool with sin? If that sin, you know, is going to make you happy. No, we're believing a lie that we have bought into. And almost always... Conversations like that are with folks. I don't like fault. Listen, it's not ever comfortable or enjoyable to acknowledge where we have actually worshiped a false version of God instead of God. Because often what's happened is this man or woman that I'm talking with just haven't spent time in the true good wisdom of God's word. And I promise you there's life in it. And here's the third thing David tells us. This word, it gives joy to its reader. That's verse eight. I, I honestly I don't know fully how to explain this to you. But when you read God's word, a story comes out. The story that you rebelled against God, but you have been offered salvation from your sin. That salvation, when you scrap hold of that, you didn't do anything for it. You rebelled, so you definitely didn't deserve it. But you've been offered it as a free gift of grace. It leads you, it will lead you to joyful worship. We'll talk about that more in a second. There's something else in verse 8. The precepts of the, of the Lord are right, not re- rejoicing the heart. You see that? Rejoicing the heart. Verse 10 says there is a sweetness to it that makes it more enjoyable than the most delicious foods that the psalmist knew to talk about. I read the story of Ruth, and I see the beautiful redemption that God brings to her. And then I think, man, this is God speaking to me about the redemption that he offers me too. I get the same redemption Ruth gets. All of a sudden I'm getting choked up because I realize my redeemer has come for me, even though I'm a wretch with nothing to offer. I read the woman at the well and realize I too have given myself away. I've given myself away to other gods. I'm her. And then Christ comes and he offers me forgiveness, new identity. I'm not worthy of it. He sees the real me, knows I'm not worthy and gives me redemption anyways. What ends up happening? I don't know what else to say, but I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned, unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Story after story in this word of God's love for you. It's right here in the scriptures. I've cried tears of happiness over those pages because I've found joy unmatched by anything in this world. I found John 15, 11 to be true. These things I have spoken to you that your joy may be, that my joy may be in you and your joy may finally be full. Full. Fullness of joy. That's what we're after. I gotta keep going. He says in verse 10, God's word is more valuable than gold. This one is a pretty easy application. God's word is more valuable than gold. 
If you have to choose between the word of God and gold, you choose God's word. If you have to choose between God's word and much fine gold, you choose God's word. If you have to choose between God's word and Bitcoin, you still choose God's word. Because the benefit of knowing and doing the word of God are greater than anything that money can buy. And where does the rubber meet the road here? In a culture where we, I'm going to talk to the working professional for a second, where you work all the time. And there's really no downtime in your mind because you're always thinking about work. And any free moment is actually a moment to work. I'm telling you that in that moment, if you get to the end of your day and you haven't had time to get in God's word, but you've had extra time to kind of pull some emails off and get a little further on that project, you have said that gold is more valuable than God's word. And I'm, I'm just calling you in love as one who is an achiever and who definitely drifts that way in my life, that his word has proven way more valuable for my soul, for my family, for my life than any extra dollar, extra work, anything that that can get done. And by the way, not just, not just to the one who works and drifts, also to those of us that just get distracted, man, who spend hours on screens distracting ourselves, God's word is more valuable than that distraction too. So if you find yourself trying to decide between knowing God's word and checking your email, checking the market, doing whatever you think will just buy you a little bit of extra cash, turn to his word. I read one pastor who said, you know, it's like the, like the child who chooses the penny over the dime because the penny's bigger. And the adult looks on and shakes their head and is like trying to teach the children, you know, no, 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 that you need to see which one is really more valuable. I know the penny looks bigger, but the dime's more valuable, right? This is no doubt the way the angels in heaven look down at the childlike working professional who study the stock market before they study the Bible. There is a difference, however, of course, because the benefit of the word of God over the benefits of gold are far greater than 10 to 1 penny to dime. Here's the last thing David says. God's word warns you against sin. Verse 11, I think, presents a very important juxtaposition. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. God warns us against sin, shows how vulnerable, like Adam and Eve, we are to be deceived by the lies of Satan. We, you should catch this. You need warning because you're not all, like, all-knowing. You can be deceived. That's why you need warning. So I'm warned against attack, but then also I'm given reward as I obey. In obeying Hebrews, things like Hebrews 3.13, to exhort one another every day so that my heart is not hardened against the deceitfulness of sin. When I do that, not only am I warned and drawn away from the deceitfulness of sin, but there's great reward. There's a depth of friendship that I can only experience in the family of God. And God has given me, y'all, such close friendships when I heed those warnings that come from a brother or sister in Christ, bringing God's word, illuminating it all my life to help me watch out for the deceitfulness of sin so that my heart is not hardened. Not only am I saved from myself, but I am bonded closer to a brother or sister in Christ. Every time I choose to apply God's word, I choose forgiveness with my friends and family. I'm protected against bitterness. And relationships are made stronger. That's reward. There is, God's word is powerful. I told you, God's word carries God's power. 
and it goes to work in real life. I've just given you five reasons from these five verses. I'm summarizing. There are easily five more you could pull. It all goes back to this big idea. God's word carries God's power. So do you cherish the Bible as if it really contains the words of the living God? I'm not asking you if you're kind of good at Bible trivia. That's not what I'm asking. Knowing about God is not the same as knowing God. So I've been after this whole series. But do you crave his word like it is food for your soul? Do you know him? I think a real danger facing our church and many young growing churches like ours is that we don't know the Bible. But the great news is we have it. And the best Bible reading is the kind that happens. All right? And so if you've got the Bible, you can read it. If you don't have, if you're like, I don't really know where to get started. Great news. On our homepage, mercycharlotte.com. You just scroll down a little bit. There's a Bible reading plan that we're doing as a church. So it's plug and play, ready to go. All right? Listen, parents, I got another book for you. Okay? This is like my resource table today. I'm pretty excited about. This book is called... The Jesus Storybook Bible. Now, this is, again, where I'm saying parents, but actually, if you've never read the Bible before, I want you to get this, okay? Because it's going to introduce you to the story, and it'll be like your guide through the Bible for the first time, all right? Really fun, really well done, and explains the story of God's great love and redemption of us, all right? So that's another one. Look, all I'm trying to do is show you, man, the Word of God is so good. All right, let's finish seeing how all this connects. End of Psalm 19. Everybody doing okay? All right, let's go. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Oh, man, listen to this next one. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In light of the majesty and goodness of God, first seven verses, David becomes aware of his own less than perfect self. He's not as big as the heavens, and he's not as perfect as the law. The next seven verses, right? He just can't measure up to God in any way. (laughs) He knows it. He's seen it, and he's written it down so that we will all see it. We can't measure up in any way. It'd be like comparing Lipton canned tea to Courtney Shelton's homemade sweet tea. That was a terrible, ter- it doesn't compare. It's this like terrible stuff in a can that should have never been made, right? Compared to the golden brown nectar that is Courtney Shelton's sweet tea. Anyways, um, David is wise. He sees that it is his sin that makes him flawed. And the perfection of God exposes his flaws. You catch that? The more you look up, see how big he is. The more you can his law, see how perfect he is. It exposes you. That's not me, right? I, I'm not perfect. I'm not God. That, when that happens, it's good. It's very good when the Lord does that to you. It reveals your sin. It reveals where you and God don't line up. And so David prays, who can discern his errors? Who can see them? Help me. Keep me back from them. And then he says, let them not have dominion over me. And there is the linchpin of his prayer. David alone cannot free himself from sin's dominion over him. It runs his life. 
but he wants to be free so that he can be acceptable and in union and good fellowship with this glorious and good God. So David does all he knows to do. He asks God for deliverance from his sin. He throws himself at God's mercy. Well, the Apostle Paul has the very same problem David had. Romans 7, what does he say? The law that should have brought life to him brought death. Right? It was like this legal document. It's like, oh, look, God's law, and it's a legal document. What does it read? It reads his condemnation to him. That's how so many people see the Bible. They stop there. A code that if you break it, you're condemned. And in a sense, you're right. All right? It's just not the whole story. you got to finish the story. The law by itself does condemn us. Creation shows you there's a God whose glory is unmatched. His word shows you that he's good. Both show you you're unworthy of God. That's what he's saying in 12 through 14. He needs redemption. So he prays to his redeemer. And if the redeemer finds his prayer acceptable, he'll redeem him. He'll no longer be guilty of transgression. This word of God, y'all, this Bible, at its core is a story about the one who answered that prayer. He answered the prayer. It's a story about Jesus who said, though you have sinned, you're right, David, you're right, Paul. Though you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, this God still loves you. He still loves you. He wants you back. You're the prodigal son and he is the father with his arms open wide. You're the one lost sheep, the one lost coin. He's the shepherd coming to find you. Y'all, the Bible is many story after many story, parable after parable, either pointing us towards or reflecting on the cross of Jesus Christ where once and for all he paid for your sin. Love for us put him on the cross. God's goodness is ours now. And that the Bible that once told us how perfect God was and how flawed we are now tells us about the character of the father who loves us. That incredible God that creator is our father. And even when we fall short, the things that it says about him never change. So of course it's better than honey. Of course it's better than gold. It's telling me about God's love for me, that he gives me life. And all the promises in scripture start to open up to me because I'm now free from condemnation. And if that's become old hat to you, you Christian, I would... I hope that it revives your soul today, that you go back to God's word with fresh eyes and not just God's word, but what's the story running through God's word? What's going to pull up off the page? It's the gospel that though you didn't deserve his love, he sent his son to pay for your sin. So you didn't have to, and I didn't have to. And his son paid your penalty on the cross and he died, but he didn't stay dead. Because one thing you're going to see in scripture is that God keeps bringing dead things back to life. And it's a foreshadowing. Ezekiel's valley of dry bones. It's a foreshadowing of what God is going to do in Christ. And he brings Christ up out of the grave after three days ensuring, yes, he was dead. And he brings him back declaring victory, not just sin paid for, but now there is victory. The chains of sin are broken and there is victory over sin. And he's not dying a second time. He is back to life and now lives actively reigning beside the father and will one day come back to get us to bring us home forever with him. That's the promise we have in Christ. That's the story God's word tells us.
And that should lead us to worship, to worship. And if you're not a Christian, I invite you to receive that gift of love that the scripture is telling you. You got to receive it. It's a gift. It's a gift. That's what Romans 6 is going to say. It's a gift. And gifts are meant to be received. And you can receive it today. He offers you salvation, forgiveness, and new life. New life. And he says you can have it through him today. Let me pray for you as we wrap up our time. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you. Thank you for your word. God, I pray that we would devote ourselves, devote ourselves in our community groups, in our homes, uh, in our private times where it's just me and you. We devote ourselves in our church to your word. And God, would you do that work that only the Holy Spirit can do? Revive us. Revive our souls. Strengthen us. Let it taste better to us than anything else that's out there. And show us, God. Show us how better it is. You, that is a work only you do. If you're not a Christian, you've been watching in with this, maybe a friend sent it to you, I just invite you to receive the hope of the gospel. Receive that forgiveness. You can pray right now. Just tell God, I, I know I'm a sinner. I believe I'm a sinner. I believe I need salvation. And I believe Jesus died for me. So God, I believe it. I receive that forgiveness. I receive that new life in Christ. Thank you, God, for saving me. If you prayed that, if you're accepting Christ, I pray that you would take the step to let somebody know, whether it's letting us know, and you can email me, Pastor Spence at mercycharlotte.com. Let me know, all right? Or let a friend know, a Christian that maybe sent this to you. But y'all, we've got such a good God, and he has redeemed all of us and his fellow sinners. We just want to walk together, uh, walk together in God's word as fellow redeemed sinners, enjoying and worshiping this great God who has set us free. I love you. So thankful for the chance to gather, even in a different way like this. God bless you. You are sent.